From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman. If you're new to the podcast, hello! Each week, along with my colleagues Nathan Connolly, Brian Ballow, and Ed Ayers, we explore a different part of American history. Now, over the years, tens of thousands of books have been published about the Civil War. America's most divisive conflict might be its most written about. No other moment in American history has captured public and scholarly attention quite like the battles that raged throughout the United States from 1861 to 1865. With stacks and stacks and stacks of books about the Civil War, it can seem hard to know what else there is to say. But historians are coming up with new ways to look at that historic conflict all the time. So on this episode of Backstory, we wanted to feature two conversations with scholars offering new takes on how to understand the Civil War. You'll hear my conversation with writer and historian Megan Kate Nelson about how the war changes if you look beyond the North-South binary. And you'll hear Ed's conversation with Joan Cashin, the author of several books on the Civil War era. In her newest book, Professor Cashin shifts her attention from the people of the Civil War to the goods that kept it going. The American West. It's a region that looms large in the national imagination. But when it comes to the Civil War, the places that dominate the headlines couldn't be further away from the West. After all, wasn't all of the action of the Civil War in places like Gettysburg and Manassas, Shiloh and Vicksburg? Maybe so. But Megan Kate Nelson wants you to think again. Nelson is an author and historian. Her latest book is The Three-Cornered War, The Union, the Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. In it, Nelson tells the tale of the Civil War in New Mexico. And she does it by weaving together the stories of a diverse cast of characters. To name just a few, there's John R. Baylor, a Texan who establishes the Confederate territory of Arizona. James Carlton, a Union soldier who fought campaigns against Navajo and Apache peoples. And Juanita, a Navajo woman who fights Union efforts against her people. I spoke recently with Nelson about her book and how these unique stories, set in a unique backdrop, change our very framework for the Civil War. Hi, Megan. Welcome to Backstory. Um, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting. Megan, you call the Civil War in the West the Three-Cornered War. So tell us a little bit about what you mean by that. Sure. So there are really three meanings for the Three-Cornered War. Uh, the first is that uh, the book contends that the war took place in the North, the South, and the West between the Union, the Confederacy, and Native peoples, uh, and that th those fights involved Anglo, Hispano, and Native soldiers. So in all of those three ways, I'm really thinking of the war more expansively um, as 
a conflict that involved more than the usual players, more than the people uh, we think about uh, usually when we think about Civil War history and um, in more uh, and diverse places. I'm curious as to how you came to this viewpoint and to this topic. And I know you grew up in Colorado. So is it partly your Western viewpoint that that led you in this direction with this book? Partly, yes. I think when I was writing my previous book, Ruin Nation, and kind of thinking about it and researching it and teaching Civil War history, I was doing, as we all do, um, a lot of background research. And I discovered that there were these battles in New Mexico. And I had never heard of them growing up in Colorado. You know, we had had history about pioneers and we had talked about Indian wars, but they tended to be later, kind of in the 1880s and 90s. And, and, you know, we talked about silver mining, but we never talked about the gold rush of 1859, 5859. And I was really shocked, actually. (laughs) It was one of those moments where I thought, how is it possible that I grew up not knowing about the conflict (laughs) in this region and not knowing that Colorado soldiers took part in this war and that they had actually turned the tide. They were really responsible for pushing the Confederates back in the first phase of the war. Now, we're talking about the West, you're talking about Colorado, but actually the book focuses on New Mexico. And before the Civil War broke out, the territory was pretty much brought into the Union as a place where residents could decide whether it was going to be a free state or a slave state, and they chose for it to be a slave state. So give us a sense of what slavery would have looked like in the region at that time? Yeah, so the, the system of enslavement evolved in the Southwest in a really interesting way. For hundreds of years since first contact, um, since Europeans had come into the kind of northern reaches of Mexico, which aren't, is now kind of New Mexico, and in this moment was New Mexico territory, there evolved a kind of really intricate system, an economic system mostly of raiding warfare, where uh, Hispanos, either Spanish, Mexican, or Hispano, New Mexicans, would raid Comanche and Apache and Navajo camps and uh, towns, and they would take the women and children mostly um, captive. And then those indigenous communities would raid uh, in retaliation and take Hispano captives as and use them um, as unfree laborers. It's not the same kind of system of enslavement that we see in the Southeast, but it was regional and it was the economic basis of mm. the regional trade. So it's important to realize that all of the communities in this region did, in fact, engage in this practice. And this was one of the reasons, actually, that Confederates thought they had a pretty good chance of taking the Southwest. Mm. Uh, They thought that because, um, you know, wealthier Hispanos enslaved um, Native peoples and because Native peoples had this system of enslavement as well, and that both of those groups were not particularly fans of the federal government uh, in the 1850s, that, uh, that perhaps they could persuade them uh, to join the Confederate cause. You can really see, even just in our conversation here, how taking this Western vantage point introduces all kinds of contingency that people don't tend to plug into this conflict. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There are all sorts of moments where things kind of turn um, where if things had only been different, if if the Confederate army that had not, the Confederate army that had invaded New Mexico in the summer of 1861, if it, it had not been entirely Texan, <laughs> then <laughs> they they may have had a better case to make uh, with Hispano New Mexicans who huh. uh, did 
did not have any um, charitable feelings towards Texans because Texans had invaded New Mexico before. If there was anyone that Hispano New Mexicans felt less disposed to life than the federal <laughs> government, it was Texans. And so, you know, there were sort of these moments and these calculations, um, you know, where Henry Hopkins Sibley, who was really leading this, this invasion of the territory, he really miscalculated. Contingency in action is what that is. <laughs> it's like, oh, serious miscalculation. Yes, exactly. Now, along these lines, the, the, your book tells this story that you're telling by looking at nine different people. And we're talking Union people, Confederate people, Apache, Navajo, men, women. And one of those people is John Baylor, who is a Confederate um, and I understand he compromises Confederate President Jefferson Davis's plans to form an allegiance with indigenous peoples in the region. He pens some kind of an extermination order. So can you explain what, what that's about? What is that extermination order and what was Baylor doing? Sure. Yeah, let me, I'll, I'll give you a little background on Baylor first. He was originally from Kentucky, but he uh, came to Texas in the early 1840s. He owned slaves. Um, he also was a lawyer. He one election to the state legislature. Uh, so he was one of these like men on the make, right? He, in this period, he had a lot of ambition. By the time the Civil War broke out, you know, he was really primed to join the Confederate Army. And so he led the kind of first group of soldiers, the Second Texas Mounted Rifles, into New Mexico territory in the summer of 1861. And he successfully occupied uh, the town of Mesilla, which is in southern New Mexico, and forced the surrender of a Union fort nearby, Fort Fillmore. And then he sat down on August 1st, 1861, and created the Confederate Territory of Arizona. Um, it was basically the southern half of New Mexico territory. So he kind of created um, this thoroughfare for the Confederacy from Texas to California, which is, of course, California was, was really the goal. But all along that pathway was a mail route that had been built um, on top of an Apache trail. So in order to get from Texas to California, the Confederate Army was going to have to go through Apacheria, which is a massive territory occupied mostly um, in, in this part by uh, Chiricahua Apaches. When the war began, um, and even a little bit before, the Chiricahua Apaches had been kind of taking advantage of all of this war mobilization. There were a lot of people on the roads, there were a lot of animals and wagon trains on the roads, and they raided them. And John Baylor knew then in order for the Confederacy uh, to really launch their campaign for California, they were going to have to um, meet the Apaches in battle and subdue them. And so as all of this other war action with the Union was going on, and this is why it really is a three-cornered war, Baylor pivots and looks to the West and to Apaches, and he sends contingents of soldiers kind of out toward Tucson, and he himself leads a raid against Apaches into Mexico, which almost causes an international incident. And then one of his final acts in March of 1862, before he leaves New Mexico, is to instruct one of his militia company commanders to try to lure Chiricahua Apaches uh, into a parlay and then to kill all the men and enslave all the women and children. And this became known as, the, as Baylor's Apache Extermination Order. And he kind of left it, uh, well, he sent it to the militia captain and then he left a copy for Henry Sibley, who was commanding this much larger Texas army, you know, trying to, to uh, defeat the Union along the Rio Grande. And when Henry Sibley saw that order, he was 
outraged, and he sent it along to Jefferson Davis in Richmond. The Confederacy was really trying to, to have a softer touch. They really wanted um, their soldiers to to sign um, treaties of allegiance with Native peoples. Baylor actually ended up being forced to leave the Confederate Army for a time um, hmm. because of this extermination order uh, that he had issued, because it was a great kind of embarrassment um, to the politicians in Richmond. Another character in your book is Juanita. Um, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about her and why her story is important to your book. Sure, yes. Yeah. So Juanita was a Navajo woman. And she was just a teenager when she married Manuelito, who was a powerful Navajo headman. And pretty soon after their wedding, the Civil War began. So readers of the Three-Cornered War kind of follow her as she and Manuelito and their band of Navajos kind of engage with and evade and manipulate Union forces um, who are in their homeland, uh, beginning in, in the kind of summer and fall of 1861 and 62. And then they're kind of forced by 1866 by impending starvation to surrender to the U.S. Army. That came about because uh, once the Union forces had forced the Confederates back to Texas, there were thousands of soldiers in New Mexico with two years left in their enlistment in the Union Army. Uh, huh. And so the new commander in charge there, James Carleton, turned them toward uh, fights with Chiricahua Apaches, uh, Muscalero Apaches, and Navajos. So readers will sort of learn about all of those actions through her eyes and her experiences as not only a woman, uh, you know, a woman and a civilian. She and Manuelito are constantly moving, uh, constantly evading Union forces until they're forced to surrender, and then they are forced on the long march, uh, or the long walk, um, from their homeland to a reservation called Bosque Redondo, which is in the middle of New Mexico. And it's about a 400-mile march uh, that they do mostly on foot. And then once they get to Bosque Redondo, they're there for about two years. Uh, and mm. this reservation was just a disaster. And, and the story of Juanita's long walk and her experience at Bosque Redondo really dominates the last part of the book. I really think that she, that Juanita... Her story is one of suffering, but it's also one of persistence mm. and survival. And of all of the protagonists, I really think that Juanita is, is the heart of the book. Now, we, for logical reasons, have been focusing on the West, but now I want to shift the focus for just a second. Certainly, the book is absolutely persuasive in talking about how important the West is to understanding the Civil War, but how much of the story that we've been talking about here made its way back east. So how, how much of this percolated and had an impact on people on the East Coast? Well, there definitely were reports and, and stories of particularly the larger battles. The Indian campaigns were less reported, but they were very much reported across the West um, in all of the, the big newspapers. You know, the, the Confederacy wanted the West for its gold and its Pacific ports, um, and they really saw it as a central feature of their expanding empire of slavery. And so even though they may not have been kind of talking about the war in the West, they were feeling the impact of it. In the North, one of the interesting things that happened is that once the Confederacy was kind of pushed back and once the Union, um, you know, once the commander in Santa Fe sent word that they were gone and that 
he had secured the West and that they would continue to monitor everything, but he was fairly certain that they wouldn't be coming back. Then Congress passed a series of, of acts. So in the spring and summer of 1862, in the wake of the Union kind of victory over the Confederacy in the far West, they passed the Homestead Act, mm-hmm. the Pacific Railway Act, uh, which created the, the infrastructure to, to build the Transcontinental Railroad, the Morrill Land Grant Act, which sold public lands to support colleges and universities that had agricultural and mechanical programs. Uh, And they created a Department of Agriculture. And all of those um, pieces of legislation were part of the union's vision for the West, was going to be this empire of free labor. And that labor was going to be white labor. And increasingly, they thought also perhaps black labor, all free. But that vision necessitated the removal of native peoples. So it necessitated conquest. This is an amazing story. And I don't think um, anyone listening is going to need persuasion that you need to include the West into your understanding of the Civil War. But I want to ask you a historian-ish question. And that is, why do you think it has taken historians so long (laughs) to weave this story into their understanding of the Civil War? I think for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, I think, you know, Civil War historians have been, the field until about kind of 20 or 30 years ago was pretty dominated by military historians. When you focus on the battlefield, of course you're going to focus on the East because that's where all the major battlefields are. <laughs> um, and you're going to focus maybe a little bit on the Trans-Mississippi West. Um, but you're not going to focus on the far west at all because you don't perceive those battles to actually be battles because they were fought with so few soldiers. And I, and I think also when we think about kind of what we grow up seeing and learning and sort of the, the impact of public history on our lives, if you go to the west, there are so many civil war sites that are still there. You know, none of them really have been Uh, paved over as parking lots or strip malls. Uh, Many of them have been successfully preserved or being run by either the National Park Service or state kind of Bureau of Land Management folks or state parks. But they're really poorly signed. Apache Pass, which is the site of a very important battle between the Chiricahua Apaches and Union troops coming from California, uh, it's still there. You can even see the the ruts from the the original wagon road are still there. In order to get to it, you either have to drive on an eight-mile dirt path that goes through an an arroyo, or you have to take this other road from Bowie, Arizona, where they warn you on on the National Park Service site that the last 400 meters of the road is just rocks. Now, uh, it sounds like you took that trip. Is that the case? I did. <laughs> and I chose, and I was driving in a sedan. I was there in the, kind of several weeks after the monsoon season, but I had been warned that if there were wet, wet patches, I was likely going to get stuck. The cell service is pretty bad. I called my husband before I left the highway. And I said, if I don't call you in three hours, oh gosh, <laughs> call the Fort Bowie people and ask if they've seen me because wow. things could be kind of dire. So, um, and, it, and it turned out to be fine. The, the dirt road was actually fine. But in order to get to the, the site from there, you then have to park your car and then hike for a mile and a half. You know, it was a beautiful place to be. I was completely alone <laughs> while <laughs> I was there in many of these places. And then some of these places are actually kind of hidden in plain sight. And 
Santa Fe Plaza is a very good example of that. Like if you go to Santa Fe Plaza, you're probably there for the kind of New Mexican, green chili, you know, Navajo history experience, right? And you get a lot of that. And the Palace of the Governors is still there, one of the oldest buildings in North America. And you'll kind of walk around the plaza and you probably won't notice that there's an obelisk sitting in the middle of the plaza, much less read what's on it. And what it is is a monument to Civil War soldiers. So, you know, it's, there's, there's a way in which our, you know, we think about history sort of in place. And if we don't see it, then we don't think there was history there. Right. That the, in many ways, what you're saying is that the Civil War lives visibly in some ways in the West, but that many of us haven't noticed it yet. Exactly. Exactly. Megan Kate Nelson is the author of several books. Her latest is The Three-Cornered War, The Union, The Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. 